Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Today's guest is Basha Rubin. She's the CEO and co-founder of Priori Legal, a global legal marketplace that helps in-house teams find the right legal provider for their next project. She founded Priori with classmate Mira Levitt immediately upon graduation from Yale Law School and never looked back. Last year, Priori raised $6.3 million in Series A financing from leading investors in legal technology. The growth continues to be fueled by demand raising from the pandemic. Listen in to today's conversation to learn why Basha chose the path of the entrepreneur instead of practice and why she chose to found a technology company. How Priori uses technology and data to drive better outside counsel hiring decisions in the $800 billion business of legal services. The factors driving demand for alternative approaches such as those offered by Priori and its newest product, Scout. And we also talked about the specific questions posed to women entrepreneurs by investors and Bosch's advice for how to answer them. It was an interesting and enlightening conversation, and I hope you enjoy listening to it. I'm joined today by Basha Rubin from Priori, one of the leading legal tech companies and really automating and improving the business development channel for corporations, procurers of legal services, and those people that want to sell their services. Basha, thank you so much for taking the time out to join us today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to have the opportunity to chat with you. Yeah. Congratulations, by the way, on your Series A fundraising. Thank you. It was great to see, obviously, a sign of the success you and Mira have had building up this company. And I want to talk a little bit about that, and we'll talk about Priori and Scout and all your new efforts here in a second. You and Mira wrote a personal reflection when you announced your Series A fundraising about some of the journey that you had as women in the entrepreneurial space. And I'd like to take a moment and sort of reflect on your journey. The the two of you met in Yale Law School, if I understand that correctly. That's right. I suspect you didn't go to law school with the idea that you're going to start a legal tech company. You went to law school like the rest of us to be a lawyer, I presume. I went to law school. So personally, and Mira has her own different journey, of course, but I went to Yale Law School straight out of Yale undergrad. So I didn't have that much perspective on what my longer term intention was. I was one of those people that everyone always said, oh, you should go to law school. You like to talk, you like to argue, you're extroverted. And I was interested enough. And then I got into Yale Law School and I thought, oh, who turns down Yale Law School? And I went and I had just the most fabulous educational experience of my life. And I discovered while there that while fascinated by my classes and a lot of the questions posed by the law, I didn't actually want to be a practicing lawyer. I'd had a lot of entrepreneurial ambitions at all points in my life and decided after graduating from law school that I should take the plunge and combine my entrepreneurial interests with some of the really exciting trends that were materializing in law at that time. And I jumped straight into the deep end. It's rare to have people jump straight into the deep end out of law school. Tell me a little bit about your background. You said you had entrepreneurial interests leading into law school. Flesh it out a little bit for me. 
Yeah, I, I come from a family of entrepreneurs in various contexts. My grandfather was a labor union leader, which is different than being an entrepreneur, but similar in many ways. On one side, my other grandfather was an entrepreneur and my parents had started a business that they were building while I was growing up. And so it was very much in the culture of my home and my family context to want to build, to create, to make change, to identify problems and tackle them. I graduated from Yale Law School in 2010, and it was just a moment of tremendous flux, some of which has come to pass and some of which maybe was over. <laughs> right. Some of it's died down, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, it was a moment in the aftermath of the financial crisis where there were real questions about what the future of the practice of law looked like, what the future of law firms looked like. And I just thought it was such an exciting moment. To be part of it. And, and, and you know, I mean, one thing I, I didn't know much about what it really meant to start a company, particularly a technology company at the time, but I am so grateful that I got to be, I've been part of this really frothy moment and part of, you know, a small part of the picture of remaking the future of law for this next generation. So you, you leap into the deep end. I assume from the description of your background, you had some family culture support, some experience dealing with the entrepreneurial startup. But law school is not known as a training ground for entrepreneurship. What was your support system when you started? Did you have seed investors? Did you have mentors? I know at some point you went into Hearst Lab, which is a, an important moment for you, but that wasn't at the beginning, was it? No, it definitely wasn't. I, you know, I would say that while I'll answer your question in a second, but while law school is definitely not known as a training ground for entrepreneurs, I will say that my generation at Yale Law School has had some just absolutely outstanding entrepreneurs. Sandra Daniels, who's one of the founders of Thumbtack, which is a unicorn um, multiple times over, was the class of 09. Jamie Hodari, who was, I think, the CEO and founder of Industrious, which just sold for an amazing exit. It's also the class of 08 or 09. My friend Song Laurent is one of the founders of Squire. He's the class of 2010. They were just valued at $750 million. So one of the things, and actually I didn't know any of this at the time, so it didn't help me um, <laughs> back when I was starting. <laughs> but Yale Law School actually has had some incredible entrepreneurs and, and major, major successes are even more now. Heidi Irvani, also class of 09, is one of the founders of Picolino, which is a really amazing children's clothing brand. One of the founders of Abata, maybe, also Yale Law School grad. So just a plug for Yale Law School entrepreneurs, we represent a greater percentage of the population than one might think. Was there something about the way Yale approaches the educational process or is it coincidence? Have you sort of sorted through what is it that caused that dynamic? You know, I, I think it's a number of things. I mean, one is I think there are certain kind of people who I and I have no I have no idea. I mean, there are lots of incredible entrepreneurs who come from other law schools, too. But at least in Yale Law School's case, I think that the kind of people who are attracted to Yale Law School and who Yale Law School chooses are not always, I mean, have a reputation for being not always the traditional lawyer. And so I, I think it was a group of people who harbored entrepreneurial ambitions coming in and thought that Yale Law School was interesting. And, you know, Heather Gherkin, the dean of Yale Law School, who I think extremely highly of, who says that Yale Law School is a thinking degree. 
that really does resonate with my time there as well. And I also think that we graduated at a frothy moment generally in the industry and in at a moment where what had seemed like jobs that were going to be secure felt a little bit less secure in a moment where you know, maybe the tracks to partnership were inching longer. And I I think there's also been an an incredible change in the subsequent 10 years too in in work culture generally, not at Yale Law School. I don't have much insight into that anymore. And people graduating today, what young lawyers graduating today expect in terms of their career. And I think that, that that is one of the exciting things about what we're seeing at Priori, to maybe try and bring it full circle back to the company, is that we're able to support people having a much more varied kind of career than going through a traditional path. So how does the idea come to you? You're a law student. You've come directly from undergraduate. You haven't practiced. No. Right? So you identify a problem and a potential solution. How does that come about? One of the things that Mira and I in different contexts in law school spent a lot of time thinking about, and Priori originally was for individuals and small businesses. Priori now is for corporations. And so the the idea and the company have evolved rather significantly over time. But what we saw was that individuals mostly and small businesses somewhat just because of what our lens was, didn't know how to evaluate the quality of a lawyer. They didn't know how to find a lawyer and they didn't know what a lawyer should cost. And they were afraid of how much they were going to spend with a lawyer. And as a result, there was this tension between people and lawyers and people didn't want to hire lawyers. And as as a result, they let their problems blossom into bigger problems that were ultimately thornier and costlier to resolve. And that was the initial impetus. That was the initial thing we were trying to tackle by creating a vetted network of small providers who agreed to discounted rates. We would be able to enable small businesses and individuals to hire lawyers with more confidence. So you have this idea. As wonderful as Yale Law School is, I presume it's not a business school. So they're not teaching sort of fundamentals of business and how you create a business. What's your next step? I did everything wrong. Um, so <laughs> it, was, it was definitely um, education by fire. And there are parts of my law school education that I think have served me extraordinarily well and other parts that I had to unlearn, like my desire to be perfect all the time. Well, that is what law school teaches. Exactly. Judge someone for a stray comma, but it turns out that that actually does not make or break any business, well, except for I mean, maybe in particular kinds of litigation. Right, um, right. You can break a business, but, <laughs> but in most cases, it doesn't matter at all. So I spent a long time trying to work out what the business model was. And then I spent a long time building the technology platform that was going to serve it. When I started to be charitable to my past self, didn't have a community of entrepreneurs that and startups that was as strong as it is today. You know, if I could do it over, I would say plug into a community and really focus on that. Stop trying to do everything in isolation and also to build, and this is every startup advice ever, but build the absolute minimum viable product, try and make the business work and then build the product up around it. But instead, I spent a long time building a full service product, much of which worked and much of which didn't. Not that the technology worked, but, you know, my guesses about how the market was going to behave didn't always work. Right. Do you have a technology background? 
I don't. I worked with a number of external people at the time, and I learned a lot along the way. It must be an incredible learning journey. Yeah, I, I would also tell myself to go learn how to code. If I could. <laughs> well, there's still time. You could still go learn how to code. I could, um, and I might well. I, I don't want to be completely at sea when my kids are, you know, coding at six or whatever is normal now. Well, they'll use no code stuff, and they'll be light years ahead of their parents' generation. So you 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 get the business off the ground. And you go through, I take it from you and Mira's sort of personal reflections. In that eight eight years pre-Series A financing, you went through a number of pitches, fundraising efforts. Tell me what that was like for the two of you. Definitely. The other thing that I, I can't quite imagine now, but was very true at the time, is that we weren't really seeing ourselves as a technology startup. I saw myself as starting a legal services business. And of course, now every company is a technology. St- I mean, you know, I mean, even a children's clothing company is a technology startup. But that hadn't quite clicked at the time. And so in the beginning, I didn't think we needed outside investment. So I we weren't seeking it. And that was both a decision that I think has served us very well and also a decision that caused us grief over the years. And I'm, I'm, I'm ultimately grateful for it because I think it is one of the reasons that we have survived, that we survived as we did. Because, you know, once you have external stakeholders in the room, there are a different set of expectations about what you need to, what you need to accomplish. And so we thought, you know, we wanted to keep control over the business and we didn't think of ourselves as starting a technology company. And so we didn't seek to raise for a very long time. It wasn't until 2016 when we had changed the business. We had pivoted it up market. And I, I think for what it's worth, it is being able to be independent for as long as we were that enabled us to have realizations about the business model, experiment, pivot, and ultimately hit that product market fit. You pivoted from individual, almost the retail side of the practice to the corporate side of the practice. What caused you to make that pivot? Yeah, we, we couldn't see a path to scale. We couldn't figure out, we, we had very happy customers, but we didn't see a way to get to the scale that we needed without significant amounts of money. And we didn't think that we were ultimately going to be able to build a, a business that was sustainable. And so we began seeing that the one segment of our market that was really performing and growing with us over time were companies that had an in-house counsel. And that wasn't Fortune 100s, it was, you know, Series B startups. We really leaned into that segment of the market and pivoted exclusively to servicing companies when they have an in-house counsel. Now we have multiple of the Fortune 10 who are priori users, you know, all the way through to those Series A, Series B startups. But that was the decision that where everything clicked. And the business started growing really fast. And we then made the decision in 2017 to go out and raise our seed round. And that is something that we, I think we wrote about a little bit, but we were both pregnant at the time. We had our daughters 12 days apart. That's partnership. Yeah. <laughs> Couldn't plan it if you tried. Um, <laughs> but we hadn't been, we hadn't closed the round by the time we had our kids. And so we wound up finalizing that round about two and a half months after our, our daughters were born. So it was quite the whirlwind experience and an experience we're so grateful for the investors that we have. We've just gotten so lucky with the partners that we have in the room. And that was always really important to us. But it was, you know, two pregnant women running a, a business that, you know, was not always the easiest sell, I think. You know, and, and that's, a, that's a little bit about what we wrote about. 
And part of the point was that none of the challenges we face were in any way unusual. They're in fact completely mundane and things that every woman and every young mother, I think, in particular faces in terms of expectations when they're out fundraising. And, you know, I don't think it's a surprise that whatever 2.2, 2. point something percent of venture capital dollars go to women. And if you look at companies that have, and I'm mangling the numbers here, but that have two female founders, all female founding team, the numbers get even lower. And I don't think it's because there aren't women starting companies. There are. They're just having a much harder path to fundraising. What advice do you give to women entrepreneurs who are going down the road you've traveled about how to confront and deal with some of those barriers or biases? Part of it is having role models to look to like you two, but there must be more advice you give. You know, I, I think that one of the things that has really, you know, there's this HBR article, I don't know, that is much talked about from a few years ago. They did some experiment where they recorded um, venture capital pitches of women and men. And the questions that the venture capitalists, the same venture capitalists asked women versus men for their business were very different. And that certainly rang true for us. I mean, I've, I've never been a man fundraising, so I don't know. I, maybe all people are getting asked the same questions. But when I talk to my friends who are men who have fundraised, they're not being asked the same kinds of questions with the same level of hyper granularity about metrics. And so your CAC is X. And how do you justify the inclusion of Y? And like very specific questions. Like you say you calculated your EBITDA this way. Like we think it should be calculated this way. Please explain. Whereas men are being asked questions like, what's your vision for the company? <laughs> you know, um, yeah. You know, the first time we went out to fundraise, we we weren't expecting that because we'd had all these conversations with other people who are like, you, you know, you're an early stage company. Your numbers are strong. Your numbers, our numbers were right where everyone says they're meant to be for the round size we were raising. Like, and instead, we were always pushed on that sort of thing. And I think that that's something that female entrepreneurs need to be prepared for. I mean, I I want things to change, but. When you go to pitch, it is about like a extraordinary command of everything about your business and everything that you are putting out there. And that that is sort of a different experience that women have. Well, I think it's fabulous that the two of you are voicing these uh, experiences for other women to learn from. That's great. Let's pivot a little bit and talk about Priori. What is the business model? Let's talk about Scout separately here, because I know you must be proud of your new project. We are very excited about our new product. But the the core business marketplace is a way for in-house teams to find, hire, and manage a global vetted network of attorneys at firms of all sizes. So built two things. One is that global vetted network of attorneys whom we vet using a proprietary data-driven vetting process that yields about a 10% admissions rate. And then a, um, a technology platform that sits on top of the attorney network and aims to drive efficiency at every stage of the process of engaging with them from initial RFP and bidding all the way through to billing and invoicing. So our clients are Fortune 500s, fast-growing technology companies, financial firms who see us as a way to reduce outside counsel spending, to identify local counsel and niche expertise, to um, drive their diversity goals, and to identify you know more flexible staff augmentation style options. So I'm a practitioner in a AMLO 100 law firm or 200 law firm. 
I'm interested in joining the network. Do I join as a firm? Do I join as an individual or? You would join under under the auspices of the firm. If your firm gave you the blessing to practice on your own to moonlight, I, I haven't seen that happen yet. But if they did, you could. Um, but usually it is under the auspices of the firm. So what's the process I go through? How am I vetted? Yeah, there is an online application that you would complete that would be scored. If you met our criteria, you would be invited for a structured video interview. And then after that, there'd be two reference checks, one with a colleague and one with a client. So I assume one of the variables you're trying to quantify is quality, right? Because you don't want people in the network that are not high quality service providers. And you're doing it on a data-driven basis without trying to get into any proprietary information. How have you tried to quantify something that seems almost inherently unquantifiable? An ongoing challenge, and we're getting better every day at it, but it's not perfect, just as a caveat up front. But what we've done is we've looked at basically the attorneys who've been the most successful on our platform, who have received the highest reviews from clients, who are the, you know, who have the longest engagements with clients. And then we've compared that to the characteristics of those practitioners' initial applications to try and understand, to try and create a picture of what kinds of criteria are ultimately predictive of the most successful attorneys on the network. What I will say is that quality is also subjective. We have attorneys who have extremely successful relationships with some clients, and then they go to another client and there's a negative experience. And so part of what we're trying to do is to understand what those things are and what what the client is looking for too. I mean, just to take commercial contracts is sort of the easiest, I, I think the easiest example. There are some clients who want an extremely light and business forward markup. They want someone who's going to look at a contract, identify the burning dumpster fires, but otherwise move things forward and move things quickly. There are other clients who want a thorough legal markup of every single contract. And a lawyer might be good at one of those things and not very good at the other one. And trying to identify both what the lawyer's approach to lawyering is, as well as what the client's preferred approach is, is something that we spend a lot of time thinking about. It must be an incredibly challenging technological opportunity to really apply. You must be using various uh, machine learning. Yeah, I think we're, we're barely broaching the surface of it. And it's definitely something where I think there's a lot more opportunity and is really exciting and interesting. I'm going to apologize. I don't quite know how to ask this question. Perhaps Scout gets to this, but I know one of the challenges in hiring into the legal profession is basing hiring decisions off of outdated or preconceived notions of abilities of people to succeed, not expanding the universe of law schools. You go to, you know, looking for different life experiences in order to increase diversity and to increase the inclusion side of it. Have you encountered those barriers in your selection process? And if so, how have you sort of addressed those? This is something that's been a real evolution for us over time. You know, when we first started, we waited heavily having certain kinds of school experience and certain kinds of firm experience. And what we actually found was those attorneys were not always the highest rated attorneys in our marketplace. 
And in many cases, I think it was because the kind of the way in which they'd been trained to practice law at a big law firm was not always what Series B startup wanted them to do. And instead, there were other attorneys who had a different kind of experience who were actually much better suited for the tasks at hand. And so we weight very heavily how our lawyers perform within the network once they start getting jobs. And what we see is that there is a tremendous diversity of background of the most successful attorneys in the network. Okay. Last question on your core product. It sounds like you've created an ecosystem of service delivery with billing that integrates into the billing systems of the clients. So it's not just a selection process. It's also a, a management tool, if I'm understanding correctly. Yeah. And I think the billing and invoicing in particular is a, is a tremendous benefit. We built a full service billing system, probably something I built that we built before we launched and maybe didn't need to be in the first iteration of the product, if I'm honest with myself in retrospect. But what that's meant is it's a tremendous value driver on both sides. For the lawyers in our network, invoicing and particularly collections is a real pain point in cost center. Clio every year publishes these statistics about how many hours a day small firm lawyers are actually billing. It's always uh, less than 2.5 hours. And that's sort of remarkable. And the question is, what are they spending the rest of their time on? It's admin, it's business development. And what we're hoping to do is close that gap and give them more billable time. And then for larger corporations in particular, vendor onboarding is a real cost center. So what they can do with our system is they can onboard us as a single as a single vendor and via that relationship, work with as many law firms and lawyers as they like. All right. Sounds like a great value add. In the time we've got left, talk to us about Scout because you've just announced your new product, which is aimed, if I understand it correctly, at this diversity issue and, and diversifying the group of people who are providing services. That's right. That's a really important facet of it. So if you think about Priori's marketplace as a way that in-house teams discover new attorney talent, Priori Scout is a way that in-house teams better understand their existing most trusted outside counsel relationships. So we've launched in beta with four companies, a um, Marsh McLennan, Zimmer Biomet, Hearst, and a Fortune 10. And what they've done is they've invited their trusted firms, their panel firms to join them and share data with them on the platform. And it enables in-house teams to be able to use a lot of the same things that they're benefiting from in the marketplace, hypergranular data about attorneys and powerful search to be able to ensure they're hiring the right lawyers for projects. And diversity is a really important aspect of it. What it enables is diversity information. You know, it's not another survey, but it's all the same information that firms are already disclosing. But it lets that sit alongside experience and expertise information in order to help drive change. So I work for a Fortune 10 or I work for Hearst or one of your consortium clients, and I've got a matter in X jurisdiction that I, I would like to use a diverse lawyer for. I've got panel firm. I could either pick up the phone and call the relationship partner and say, I want a diverse lawyer for this and have he or she figure it out. Or I can go on Scout and essentially sort through their staff and find somebody that makes sense. 
Yeah, exactly. It's meant to be a relationship enhancement, not a way to eliminate that phone call entirely necessarily, but a way to have an intelligent conversation on that phone call about how you want to think about staffing your matter and their abilities to do that from within the tool as well. But basically, when we were thinking about this and thinking about building it, one of the pain points that we kept hearing from firms as well was that they didn't always know that if you have primarily, you know, and Stephen, you know way more about this than I do. You know, a lot of firms have thousands of lawyers. And so you would call your relationship partner who was a patent litigator and say, hey, I have this new employment project. Like, who do you who do you have for it? And that there wasn't always a way for that person to know. And I, you know, I think firms are are implementing a lot of really great systems now in order to be able to track that information. But it's hopefully just making the entire process more efficient for both parties. Whether it's for your core product or for Scout, where do you pull the experience? I'm now asking the question because the interesting point you make about how in-house or lawyers at law firms with 2,000 lawyers, 3,000 lawyers don't always have their own handle on the data. And yet you're able to pull more precise information than they're able to do in-house. Is it a systems question or are you accessing information that's different? It's a systems question. I think it's a systems and searchability question um, that we're tackling with this. None of this is data that we are inventing. It is just data that obviously inventing or that, you know, that is necessarily novel to the Priori platform. It's just data being pulled from a wide range of sources that you wouldn't necessarily be able to access in one easy way. We've about run out of time. So tell me, what's next for you? What's next for Priori? Where do you see it going? Well, you know, I mean, Scout is really in its infancy, and we are just so excited both to see how the betas use the product, as well as to begin onboarding. We're beginning to onboard our first non-beta clients in Q1 of 2022. And I think there's a lot of opportunity to expand based on that. We've had a just extraordinarily rapid growth in Priori's marketplace as well. I think not necessarily unique to us that ALSPs, staffing firms, marketplaces have had a really successful period. It feels like the model is being accepted into the mainstream. So we are rapidly scaling there as well. Great. That's that's wonderful. You guys are doing some really fascinating stuff. Congratulations. It'll it'll be great to watch your continued success. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for having me. It was a lot of fun to have this conversation. Well, thank you for joining. I appreciate it. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.